Providence family, it's good to see you. Hope you've had a great week and um, happy Mother's Day. If you're a guest here with us, we're thrilled that you have joined us. Uh, We're going to stay in our uh, series this morning, Raising Kids. As we do, um, let me just give a a brief uh, confessional that leads into uh, mothers. Uh, The confession is that I've always been intrigued by medicine. Um, I think it's fascinating that something so small, so disproportionately small to the human being and to all of the various uh, needs and symptoms and the problems, that something so small when rightly applied can have such effect upon somebody's life. That's always fascinating to me. And what you find is actually something very similar. In fact, you find a kind of medicine that is being dispensed in just the first few pages of the Bible. You see, the Bible says that we, um, in the beginning, God created everything with peace and that there was perfect peace. We had a relationship with the Lord. And then the Bible says that we sinned against God. And And in those dark and devastating moments immediately after sin came into the world, the Bible says that instead of God retreating or running from us is that he ran to us. He came to the garden and he began to do very specific things. The first thing that the Bible says that he did was he made a promise. The promise that he was going to send a son that would be born of a woman that would crush the head of evil and bring us back into a relationship with God. And so there was hope, but that hope was coming. The second thing he did was he reminded us that the wage of sin is death. Indeed, that we would all die because of our sin against God. And it's interesting in verse 19 of chapter three, it says the words, you came from dust and to dust you shall return. And the very next sentence, the third thing God does is he dispenses a kind of medicine that when rightly applied, it has the ability to affect all of life. And that medicine was motherhood. There was no kids at the time, and yet Eve, it says that she became the mother of all living. The idea there is that God was going to give a temporary medicine until Christ could not only come the first time to save us, but the second time in order to make all things new, and that God was going to do something through mothers to preserve human life. We're all under a sentence of death, and yet A woman, because of the capacities that God has given to a woman, has the ability to have children to preserve the human race. But not only to do that, but to care and to console and to nurture and to help. And so on this Mother's Day, we look at not only the pages of the Bible, we look at culture, we look at this church, we look at our own families. And even in the imperfection of mothers, we honor mothers, we honor the Lord, and we thank those of you who have given so much and who teach us so much about the love of God. So let me pray, okay? Father in heaven, we bow before you and we thank you for the gift, for this medicine of motherhood, how it changes life, how it influences life, how it preserves through them human life, how through the care and compassion, nurturing of of moms that you gives so much to us in life. And so I pray for every mom. I pray for every aspiring mom. I pray for every woman who nurtures like the woman Deborah in the Old Testament, who though we don't know if she had kids, because of her influence, she became the mother of Israel.
caregiver, the nurturer, the preserver of a people. We just say thank you. And so, Father, as we think about our moms, I know that or many, and you know, that some feel tremendous gratitude, that some feel tremendous pain, and others feel a sense of grief because the death of their mom. And in each of those cases, I pray that you would give grace. And I pray for the moms in the room, for those who feel overwhelmed with the task, for those who are overwhelmed with grief because they have lost a child themselves, or for those who long to be a mom. We ask that you would pour your grace upon them as well. We know that one of the ways that you pour your grace upon us as people is you feed us through your word. And so for the sake of your great name, would you pour your spirit out upon us? Create in us a curiosity for spiritual things. Give us the ability to understand. Give us the ability to believe. And we look to you in faith. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, if you want to turn with me to Mark chapter 10, if you don't, there's Bibles in the chairs near you. And we'd love for you, uh, if you don't have a Bible, either in your lap or at home, to take that home as a gift. Uh, We could give you nothing more important than that. Some of us, I know today, you come Mother's Day and raising kids and the sermon title is what all kids need. We're like, oh, this would be great. I need to know what my kids need so that I know what to give to my kids. But there's another issue that's It takes place every Mother's Day and not just on Mother's Day, many Sundays. And that is that there are many women in the room who have lost a baby, a baby that was either in the womb, uh, miscarriage, a baby that was in the womb that was aborted, babies that were born and died shortly thereafter. And a central question comes frequently on many days, but in particular Mother's Day, when moms begin thinking about their children, is those children that they either knew or didn't know, and where are they? And are they in heaven? And are their needs being met? In Mark chapter 10, in one little account with Jesus, we actually find answers to each of these situations, the needs of children and how to meet those needs and the grief of losing children and how to think about these things. And and so in Mark chapter 10, we should read it together. Starting in verse 13, it says, And they were bringing children to him, that's Jesus, that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. This text is the most definitive text in the Bible on what happens to babies who die. Admittedly, it is not as clear as maybe some of us would like. We would like for the words to say, and if your baby died in the womb or before the age of whatever, your baby is in heaven. It doesn't say that. But I want to try to show you in this first point that I do believe that babies who die in the womb or shortly thereafter is that they are actually in heaven. So let's work through these points. The first is this, is that Jesus identified babies as being part of his kingdom. 
One day we're told in chapter 10, verse one, there's a big crowd of people and they all gathered around Jesus and he began to, to teach them. He was, he, was, he was so appealing. And you have to understand in this moment, everyone's looking at Jesus. He's, he's not the show, but he is so authoritative. He's so compassionate that even though there's so many people in so many places that you can look, so many places of potential distraction, everybody is fixed on Jesus. And we're told that in this moment, these parents, some parents, they began bringing their children to Jesus that he might touch them. Now in Mark's gospel, the one that we're reading, the word for children that he uses, it's the Greek word paideia, and it's translated children. And the word children has a a much wider scope to include like a little one-day-old little infant, that's a child, as well as a 10-year-old, we call that a child, and all of that works. And so by simply looking at Mark's gospel, we may not necessarily know on the basis of the word that he uses, children, how old these children are. There is a mention we'll get to later where he folds them in his arms, which is hard to do with a 10-year-old. But Fortunately, this story is recounted in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in Luke's Gospel, he doesn't use the word paideia. He uses the word brephos, which is the word baby or infant. These are infants. These are babies. These parents, just like many of us, when we have kids, we desire blessing for them, whether it's material or otherwise. But in particular, you get to a place where like, I desire spiritual blessing. And you come to this, this place where all these people have come to hear this person teaching who has authority over life, who's, who, 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 is, who, who is who's so loving and, and wise. And you think, man, it wouldn't be amazing if that person, that spiritual person, that rabbi, that teacher could touch my baby, maybe it would impart spiritual blessing to them. Now you have to understand something about this moment. And that is that the Jewish people believe that you earn salvation by your good works through the obedience of your life to the law of God, the Old Testament. And since babies in particular were unable to do that, babies couldn't bring a lamb right, to sacrifice. A baby couldn't give generously or or exercise justice or mercy for, for people because they're babies. As a result of that, babies and children were sort of put on the periphery. They, were, they, they weren't central to religious activity. It's not that they weren't important. They were just waiting to be more important. Right? It, it was like, we, like big things are happening. Significant things are happening here. And so what's interesting is these parents, they take their babies into the inner circle of people's attention, meaning they're not just off over, off to the side somewhere, and every now and then you can hear some noises. No, these parents get emboldened so much that they literally walk down. There's a huge crowd. They're all looking at Jesus, and they come into that space where it was obvious that everybody was going to be seeing these babies for Jesus to touch them. And as a result, it says that Jesus' disciples rebuked them. The parents scolded them. And this, this, Jesus didn't let it pass, you see, because it says in verse 14, he was indignant with them. In Luke's gospel, which is really interesting, right before Luke says, and he said, right, let the children come to me. Right here, it says, 
that he called them to himself. In other words, as you can imagine, right? If you bring your child into a space where everyone's attention is, and suddenly whoever that person, their lead disciples, it's sort of like their security team, it starts to rebuke you, you know, like you, you move away, you get out of that space. And so in Luke's gospel, it says that Jesus actually said, no, 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 don't, don't go back to your seats, stay here, come back. Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. And then he says something that is, that is really powerful. It's the most definitive statement in the Bible that says that babies who die are in heaven. And he says this, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. To such belong the kingdom of God. He's saying that my kingdom belongs not just to these babies, to these 10 or 15, I don't know how many there were. He's not saying to these individual babies. What he's saying is this, that my kingdom belongs to the category of human beings, the kind of human beings to which these babies belong. Babies. And nothing is said about the parents' faith Nothing is said if you baptize them. Nothing is said if they believe later on. Nothing is said about, about rights or, or circumcision or ethnicity or nationality. He simply says, to such, this kind of human being belongs to the kingdom and the kingdom belongs to them. Now, I know some of you, you're like, well, I want more evidence than that. And I would love to give it to you. I just can't. I can give you more evidence, but it's not more definitive than this. I do believe that it's true. I do believe that babies that are, that are miscarried, die in the womb, or shortly thereafter, before they reach an age of accountability, I want to show you that, that they do go to heaven. But this is as definitive as I believe the Bible speaks. But what... I want to show you, though, is how would that be? This is a pretty remarkable thing. As I said, that this story is recounted in three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in all three of those Gospels, the very next story is of a rich young ruler who is religious, so religious that he is trying to earn his way into the kingdom. He comes to Jesus and he says, man, I feel like I've made it so, so far, but I still don't belong. What else is there? I've kept all the laws. I've done all the things that the Old Testament says that I need to do. And yet, and yet I just simply don't belong. And he leaves the presence of Jesus not belonging to the kingdom. And compare that to this story where these babies who have done nothing yet commendable to God, they've contributed nothing to their own moral merit. And they are said to belong. Now, why? Why would they belong? How can they belong? Well, through and through, it's grace. Some people go, well, it's because they're so cute. They're, they're innocent. They're like, look at them. They're just perfect in all their ways. And, you know, and they, and, and, and the, but the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible says that ever since the fall of the first human who passed his spiritual DNA to every future generation, that every single baby is born with a sinful nature, the DNA that's predisposed to rebel against God, which is why David says in Psalm 51, surely I was sinful at birth. And then he goes beyond. He goes, you know what? Not just then, before then, 
Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Life begins at conception. Jeremiah says in uh, chapter 1, verse 5, it says that God looks at Jeremiah and he says, look, I knew you in the womb. You had personhood when you were still in the womb. This is the reality that the Bible teaches. But David is looking at his life, the historical evidence of his own rebellion, his own sinfulness and selfishness. And he says, you know what? I have never known a time that I have not been predisposed to think about myself, that I've not been predisposed to question authority. Like sin has been a part of my every memory all the way going back. And so it must have begun even at birth, indeed, even at conception. The DNA of sin was passed to me. Now, granted, it takes a little bit of time for that full measure of corruption to bear itself. But every surviving infant becomes a sinful adult. It just takes a little bit of time. And those of you who have kids and you look you're like this big and you're like, there's no way this one is the exception. You just wait a little bit, Okay. The nature that is corrupt within all of us is going to evidence itself, even in that little bundle of joy. And so how then do they belong? How do they belong? Well, the Bible says if our personhood begins in the womb, it means that we, are, we have a soul. That soul is going to live forever in either, in either heaven or hell. But the Bible is, says that God is the judge who always does what is right, who always does what is righteous. And so how is it that they belong The Bible also tells us that each one of us will be judged on the basis of conscious sins that are done in the body. Second Corinthians says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And since babies, according to Deuteronomy chapter one, have no knowledge of good and evil, meaning that they're not sitting there thinking this is the law, but I'm going to break the law. They are, I believe, what Jesus is teaching, held under a blanket of grace until they reach an age of accountability. When they understand right and wrong when they understand moral culpability and the need of a savior and any proof that we would find within the scriptures, even though it's not just as, as definitive as any parent would want, it is pretty definitive. For example, there's a baby boy that was born to David who dies And David is grieving and he's overwhelmed with grief. And yet the end of his statement of grief, this is what he says. I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. In other words, my grief is not going to bring him back. I would love to hold him again. I would love to take him home again. But that's not going to happen. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to see him again. Because I'm going to go to him. Now, David was somebody that in the Old Testament and New Testament was commended as God. I'm sorry, by God as being a righteous person. David knew he was going to go to heaven. And so what he's saying is that he believes that his baby was going to go to heaven. And not only that, but there would be a reunion with that baby in heaven. Now, to be crystal clear, some of you go, oh, so babies don't need Jesus. No, 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 no. 
every person needs Jesus. Jesus came to the earth and he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, either we go to heaven through Jesus or we do not go at all. And to be absolutely clear, every single person in heaven will sing and say forever, the only reason I am here is because of Jesus. Worthy is the lamb who was slain for me. And this includes babies who died and are saved by the grace, I believe, of Christ's blood shed for them apart from visible conscious faith before they've reached the age of accountability. Now, that is as there's more evidence. It's just not more definitive. There's evidence in Jeremiah and Ezekiel where babies are aborted after they have been born, where they're put on altars to idols and burned to death. And God Almighty in Ezekiel and Jeremiah actually looks at what's happening and declares with his own mouth in these two books. He says, these babies are innocent. And then he says, and these babies are mine, possessive. They are mine. And so there's things like this as you continue to read through the scriptures. But let me, let me conclude this point with a little brief application. And that is, let's comfort our broken hearts with Christ's promise. And for those in the room who are grieving, whether it is that you have had a miscarriage in your life, or perhaps you aborted a baby. Over 50% of people today who claim, I, I, I'm sorry, who have had an abortion also claim that they are Christians and had visited or attended their local church within four weeks of their procedure. That kind of behavior in the world, sometimes in the moment, I know people feel like this is the way out. This is an emergency and I don't know what to do with the rest of my life. And so there's a lot of people and they immediately run to that. And by the way, I want you to know that if that's you, there is grace upon grace from Jesus Christ for that sin. But there are many people who, after a period of time, they begin asking the question, I wonder what happened to that baby? Where is that baby today? And I believe personally on the basis of what I've shown you is that not only babies who are miscarried, not only babies who are aborted, but even babies who are born and died as infants, that they're in heaven. So for those of you who are grieving, let me just encourage you to remember that God loves you. He loves your baby. And as the judge of all the earth who does what is right, he says to such belong the kingdom of God. I believe there's hope for you. And if there's hope for you, there has to be hope for people in your circle of influence who have also experienced such a painful trauma. And anything that we have received that is of kindness from the Lord something that we are supposed to give to others as an expression of kindness from the Lord. So maybe there's somebody in your life that you could share this with, that they might too be comforted in their own grief. The second thing we find here is Jesus said we must receive his kingdom like a child. These kids, there's not only reference these declarations of belonging He also says that we must become like these children to enter the kingdom ourselves. 
Verse 15 says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child must not enter it, shall not enter it. In other words, each one of us must come to Christ the way a child comes, perhaps to a parent. You know, when a child wants to be picked up, they don't say, hey, here's my resume. These are all the things. This is my morality, and this is, this is what I've accomplished. I've folded my clothes and brought a lamb to church to be sacrificed, and I got 37 years of like good attendance stars in Sunday school, and so, man, you've got to be able to pick me up, right? No, what do they do? They raise their hand. If you and I are to come to heaven, we have to learn that whatever we assume is on our resume of morality, it matters not when you stand before God. That the only thing that he cares about is sincere faith. And what you find in a child is this sense that even though they may be unworthy, even if they've made a mistake, they're they're unpretentious, they're, they're trusting, they simply come. And this is what he says becomes the standard for adults to come to heaven is we have to come to Christ without pretense, not claiming a worth, not trying to bring something to the table, not trying to contribute to the salvation and not trying to clean ourselves up because we can't. Jeremiah chapter two says it this way. He says, though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me. Do you know what that means? It means Jesus didn't come to the earth to congratulate us on our morality or our soul cleansing efforts. He came because they were inadequate. He came because we couldn't help ourselves. And so as a father, the everlasting father, he says that he is to us, a father that wants to protect us, who wants to cleanse us, who, who wants to work in our life. He came and he died for our sin in our place. He rose from the dead and he says, if you will put your faith and your trust in me, I will literally cleanse your heart by taking away your sin. And instead of simply leaving your heart as in a state of emptiness from your sin, I am also going to fill it up with my righteousness so that your life becomes an overflow of my life. This is what the gospel provides to us. It's not try harder. If you've ever had the conscious thought religiously, morally, ethically, try harder, it wasn't from God. It's not Christian. If it doesn't begin with the grace of God, it's not Christian. It always begins with him coming to us saying, I am giving to you an opportunity. Respond to me without pretense. Respond to me in trust. So let me encourage you this morning to humble yourself and put your trust in Christ. Have you ever trusted him? I mean, that point in time where you say, I believe that he rose from the dead and I confess him. I surrender my life to him. He's the Lord of my life. The Bible says you do. He, you walk out of this place, a totally new person. It's available to you. The last thing I want you to see, say, what about the children who are here 
what do we do with them? (laughs) Jesus provides just what children need. It's really a beautiful thing what he does. He provided. You see in verse 16, his provision. He looks at the needs of children. He says, I'm going to meet those needs. It's really a beautiful thing how much care is is exercised by Christ. In verse 16, he says, he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Literally one by one. We don't know how many there are, but one by one, Jesus. And when it says he took them in his arms, like we've all seen people who aren't terribly comfortable holding a baby, right? You know, so you know, they, you know, they pick them up and they kind of hold them out like this. And then, and then to make sure that you know I'm not comfortable, they start looking around like there's got to be someone around here that's going to come rescue me from this situation. You know, they're not comfortable. That's not what it means when he says that he took them in his arms. This, is, this wasn't Jesus. Like, where are these parents in this crowd? Where are they? No, what he's saying is this. The actual word took them, it means to fold into. In other words, picture this. The creator God, the son of God, the hero of heaven came to the earth and actually held little babies and folded them in his perfect arms. It's it's just an absolute stunning display of compassion in spite of the fact that there's so much going on all around. He gave them personal attention. And yet they couldn't even respond to him other than look at him and coo or cry. He gave what he needed, what they needed. Well, what do they need? Just notice, first of all, kids need appropriate touch. I'm not going to go into what is appropriate and what is inappropriate. uh, uh, Only because if you don't know, come talk to me afterward. Okay, we can talk about what that is. But appropriate touch, not only from a parent, uncle, aunt, grandparent, Sunday school teacher, right? Appropriate is a little different in each one of those spaces. And so, again, if you need instruction on like what's appropriate if I'm a Sunday school teacher, well, it's not to never touch them. It may be a high five. It may be a fist. It may be a side. There's got to be something. But for every single one of us, appropriate touch is needed. Whether it's a hug, a kiss, holding hand. You know, when you have little kids, like you got a huge couch. You sit down and the kid like, right up against you, or on your lap. Let me just sit right there, you know? That's a beautiful thing because touch is needed. God created our bodies with the biggest organ in our entire life is our skin. And our skin, when it feels human touch, it sends a signal to the brain that releases oxytocin that actually increases the pleasure of belonging and decreases anxiety. Appropriate touch meets the need of acceptance and belonging, which is why whether it's with children or even adults, adults that have not received any kind of appropriate touch, a handshake, a hug. It's amazing if you just read some of the social science. I mean, it talks about all kinds of psychosis and not being touched because you start wondering, do I even belong? Do I belong? And some of you are like, I'm just not naturally affectionate. And we all know that, right? Like there's some people, you know, they are definitely the side hug, you know, people and others like the full frontal and like no back pat, just like coming in, you're like, right, how long are we going to be here sort of a thing. And it's like, like there's all different ranges of our own comfort level of how much affection that we give to others. But let me tell you something. If you're sitting there as a parent, you're saying, I am not naturally affectionate. You need to learn. You need to pray that God would help you and you need to submit to a child's needs for your touch. Appropriate, loving 
touch, to hug your kids, to, to, to pat your kids on the back. It's so important. And even though boys, when they get older, you know, you get to an age and for whatever reason, like it's not cool to be hugged by your mom or your dad at school. It's really interesting that even though boys tend to receive, there's like less physical touch, appropriate touch from people in their life is that they need it all the same. So he touched them. Second thing he, he did was he showed that kids need time. Time declares priority. I want you to know there's a limited amount of minutes when your kids are in the home. And if you have little kids and you think, oh, okay, I have a four-year-old, so I have until they're 18, so I have 14 more years, and you begin thinking that those 14 years are similar to what those years are when they're one, two, three, and four. They're not. You know, like if you ever get to the airport, you know, and right down the middle, there's a sidewalk that moves faster. So if you get on that and you walk on it, then you're walking faster and everyone up feels so good, doesn't it? You just walk home like, I just passed you. Just want you to know that, you know, <laughs> and you're just walking down that thing, right? That's middle school and high school when it comes to your time. You think, oh, we got all these years. The last six before they get to 18 are different because they are so busy. They go so fast. We have, eight, we have a 19, 20, 21-year-old. They go fast. And many of us, we treat parenting in these parenting moments like a pit stop. Like you've seen these car races, right? They come in, a car comes in, a whole bunch of guys hop the fence, jump over. And all of a sudden, in a matter of 15 seconds, right? They like change the tires and they fill it with fuel and they eat a hamburger together. And then they jump back off and the car goes away. And like 15 seconds, you think, man, that'd be awesome. That's bad parenting. That is not the model that you desire with parenting. And you'll pay a price and so will they if that's how you spend your time. You see, I know, and I I, I get it. I I get so busy myself. So sometimes I think, man, some of you are like, man, I just started a business. And so like in 10 years from now, man, we're going to have so much money and then I'm going to have so much time. I I can just spend then. Life is what happens when you're preparing to live. All of us think, oh, when, when we get there, then life, no, today. You cannot wait 10 years. Your kids cannot wait for physical touch and attention 10 years until your business gets off the ground. They need it right now. And so to provide this kind of time to them right now is critically important. And one of the reasons is this is because if you don't build trust when you don't need it, you won't have it when you do need it. And there comes a time when your children get older where the only thing that you can use as leverage for them to believe your advice is memories in their mind that are ingrained in them, a conviction that this man and this woman are for me. I should probably listen. But if we ignore the time, we don't have the trust to speak into their life when trust is needed the most. The third thing that he does, which is equally important, is kids need blessing. Blessing. This means verbal blessing. This is where we speak life over someone. We're praying for someone. We're pouring truth over someone. And Jesus did this fervently with each one of them. Just imagine the son of God looking at these babies, folding his arms and looking down at them in 
speaking truth over them. I love you. You're a leader. You're going to become great. Such a, such a demonstration of care and love. And our kids, they need us to speak blessing over their head. For years, I would take our boys one at a time. We'd rotate through. Before I became the senior pastor, Sunday mornings were a little less intense. And so I would take all, when they were little, growing up, and we would have breakfast, just the two of us, one, and then next week would be the next one, next week the next one. And, and during that time, I would reinforce what I was seeking to teach them. We had three boys, and so everything we taught was like, a mature, godly man does this, Right? And so all the time I was trying to reinforce these truths, lives for the glory of God, leans on the gospel, imitates Christ with courage, rejects passivity, takes responsibility, waits for the greater reward. And every time we would sit down at breakfast, I would, I would remind them of those. And then I would say, now, these are the ways that I've seen that in you in the last three weeks. Just trying to speak truth in their life, build them up. And it's amazing to me. It's just amazing to me that as they have grown and, 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 and like, we're not making it up anymore. It's the cool thing. Like now I'm like, dude, I really do respect you. I respect the kind of person that you are becoming. Is they're living up to those, to those words of I'm proud of you. And all of a sudden they're like, it's so encouraging. And each one of them had a, have had a moment like this, but let me just tell you one last story. And I'm going to close. You know that um, one of our sons, uh, uh, he's, uh, he lives out in San Diego. Um, and when we dropped him off that morning at the bus to go to boot camp with the Marines, um, or that night, it was on a Sunday. And Saturday, he comes in and he goes, Dad, let me ask you something. He goes, it's been like six years since we've gone and got breakfast. He goes, but how, how early would I have to wake up tomorrow on Sunday for us to go have breakfast? And I said, well... Uh, I don't know when you got to wake up, but we'd have to leave here at five. He's like, all right, let's do it. So we head to McDonald's. They're always open. <laughs> we get some, some pancakes and we're sitting down. He goes, I remember all these, all those years that you would, you would reinforce this over and over and over and over again. He goes, instead of you talking, let me tell you who I hope to become. And he says, I desire to be a man who lives for the glory of God, who leans on the gospel, who imitates Christ with courage, who rejects passivity, who takes responsibility, who waits for the greater reward. I tell you that. Now, he's not done, right? I mean, we're all a hot mess, you know? And so we're all growing. We're all learning. But here's the deal. I promise you, you speak truth into your life. You speak truth over that child's life. And it becomes a very attractive model, something that they desire to aspire to. And so let me encourage you, consider the investment that you're making in kids. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would be gracious to each one of us as we consider these truths, that you would encourage those who are discouraged, that you would build up those who are broken down, that you would give grace to those who feel guilty, that you would draw people who are outside of the kingdom to Christ, that they would become like a child in humble dependence and that they would believe and belong to your kingdom. 
God, we ask that you would comfort those who are grieved today. And we ask that you would, uh, that you would build up moms, all of them, and that you would encourage them, inspire them. We do thank you that you love us and we're so grateful for Christ. And we sing to him now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.